It was a bird. Or something. It definitely wasn't a flying saucer. Two Point Pleasant couples said today they encountered a man-sized bird-like creature in the TNT area about midnight last night. Sheriff's deputies and city police went to the scene about 2 o'clock in the morning but were unable to spot anything. But the two young men telling their story this morning were dead serious and asserted that they hadn't been drinking. Steve Millette of 3305 Jackson Avenue and Roger Scarbury of 809 30th Street described the thing as being about 6 or 7 feet tall, having a wingspan of 10 feet and red eyes about 2 inches in diameter and 6 inches apart. It was like a man with wings, Millette said. It wasn't like anything you'd see on TV or a monster movie. The men and their wives were in Scarbury's car between 11.30pm and midnight when they spotted the creature near the old power plant adjacent to the old National Guard armory buildings. The creature was seen standing on three occasions and was described as being extremely fast. It flew about 100 miles an hour, in flight, but was a clumsy runner. Deputy Millard Halstead said he had seen dust in the vicinity of a coal field, but it could have been caused by the bird, he said. I'm a hard guy to scare, Scarberry said, but last night I was for getting out of there. They did just that, but the thing followed them. They said it was hovering the car, apparently gliding, until they reached the National Guard armory on Route 62. We went downtown, turned around, and went back, and there it was again, Millette said. It seemed to be waiting on us. He said the light gray-like creature then scurried through a field. It had also flown across the top of the car. It apparently is afraid of light, Millette reasoned, and maybe it thought it was scaring us off. The young men said they saw the creature's eyes, which glowed red, only when their lights shined on it, and it seemed to want to get away from the lights. They said it looked like a man with wings, but that the head was not an outstanding characteristic. Both were slightly pale and tired from lack of sleep during the night following their harrowing experience. They speculated that the thing was living in the vacant power plant, possibly in one of the huge boilers. There are pigeons in the other buildings, Millette said, but not in that one. If I had seen it while by myself, I wouldn't have said anything, Scarberry commented. But there were four of us who saw it. They said it didn't resemble a bat in any way, but maybe what you would visualize as an angel. The last time they saw it was at the gate of the C.C. Lewis farm on Route 62. They heard a sound like wings flapping, and they said the bird rose straight up like a helicopter. This doesn't have an explanation to it, Millette said. It was an animal, but nothing like I've seen before. Are they going back to look for the creature? Yes, Millette said. This afternoon and again tonight. Today, Scarberry said. But tonight, I don't know. Life, the universe, and everything else explores the intersection of science and society. Original music is produced by Ian James, and this episode was edited by Marissa McCool. Find her on Patreon at patreon.com QAF. My name is Jem Newman, and with me today I have Ashlyn Noble. Hello. Lauren Bailey. Hi there. And Laura Creek Newman. Hello. Today we are once again talking cryptids.
I opened the show with a clipping from the Point Pleasant Register out of West Virginia, which was published Wednesday, November 16th, 1966. The article, headlined, Couples See Man-Sized Bird, Ellipsis Creature, Ellipsis Something, details the first sighting of the creature that would come to be called the Mothman. This sighting occurred in the region of the West Virginia Ordnance Works, which is an abandoned World War II munitions storage facility. Called the TNT area by locals, the wooded region is dotted with hidden bunkers and lies just north of Point Pleasant, West Virginia. It's now a Superfund site and has been renamed the Clifton F. McClintic Wildlife Management Area. I believe they started cleanup in the 1980s and still have not finished it. In the months following the publication of the article that I read at the beginning, there were numerous subsequent sightings of this man-moth. And the Mothman was soon cemented as a fixture of West Virginia lore. It was referenced in popular culture all over the place, both at the time and even since. And as the folklore grew, other unexplained phenomena in West Virginia began to be linked to the Mothman's appearance. Whenever you'd hear about an unexplained sighting or an unexplained sound or something spooky happening, people would always bring up the Mothman. The final appearance of the Mothman, however, is usually dated to the 15th of December, 1967. Does anyone know what happened on that day? No. That was the collapse of the Silver Bridge, which led right. to the death of 46 people. Mm. So at the time, I was not able to find any evidence that a connection was made to the Mothman, but subsequent reports have stated that the, the Mothman was connected in some way with people then going on to cite the absence of further sightings of the Mothman after the event as evidence that the Mothman was connected. Most typically, the idea is that the Mothman was trying to warn them. <laughs> Ah, so he's benevolent. But in some cases, people will blame the Mothman. The actual cause of the collapse was fairly... Straightforward? Prosaic is the word I was looking for. Yeah, straightforward. Mm. I'm, <laughs> that works. Jem, I'm never looking for that word. <laughs> it was simply a, a, a failure of both engineering and maintenance. Mm. I, would say, I would say probably an equal mix of the two. The way the bridge was engineered, it was supposed to be, it was over-engineered, as bridges often are, to hold a much greater load than it was originally designed for. However, traffic increased and increased and increased. And the reason so many people were killed is because it collapsed during rush hour when mm. it was full. The bridge fell into the Ohio River. The reason for the collapse was a 0.1-inch failure in one of the bars and the design of the bridge was such that a single point of failure, there, there was no redundancy. So a single point of failure mm -hmm. could result in a full collapse, which that's is not so a way. Scary. Yeah, that's not a way that they typically design bridges anymore. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, no, no just in time kind of planning for that. Correct. Now, who here likes a good story about a bridge? The connection between the collapse of the bridge and the Mothman sightings was brought to prominence by a gentleman by the name of John Keel, who was a paranormal researcher and a prominent ufologist. 
It was in his 1975 book called The Mothman Prophecies Hmm. uh, that he made the connection to the collapse of the Silver Bridge and brought in other UFO sightings from the region and also mentioned threatening government agents, men in black. John Keel is probably best known, aside from as the author of The Mothman Prophecies, as the largest promoter of men in black conspiracy theories. And he's often credited with if not coining the term men in black, at least bringing it to wide-scale use. So The Mothman Prophecies, which is quite a popular book in its day, basically tried to make a super structure, a grand conspiracy that linked together essentially every, every West Virginia paranormal occurrence into a grand web, all connected to The Mothman. Conspiracy? C O N. Conspiracy? At first, I thought you were going to say they were they made a soup, but no, uh, <laughs> no. Yeah. a soup of all of the different moths. Yum yum. So this book was quite popular in its time and did, of course, inspire the 2002 film starring Richard Gere. I'm curious if anyone I don't know if anybody has read the book, but does anyone have any guesses as to what Keel's ultimate explanation for what the Mothman is. Owls? <laughs> no, that's Joe Nichols. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, Owl seems yeah. like a good one. Literal moths that are were just too close and freaked somebody out. So we're we're talking John Keel, a paranormal researcher. So anyone oh. want to get a bit a bit more Ghosts? wild with it? Zombies? Aliens? All fair guesses. All wrong. It's quite simple, really. The Mothman, like other UFO phenomena, is a hallucination produced by ultra-terrestrials as they attempt to interact with our dimension from their dimension. Oh, so simple. Oh, geez. They also appear to be giving us premonitions, spooky sensations that warn us about future events, like bridge collapses. That part is a little bit less clear. But that's kind of the, the over, overall theme of the book. Keel was, interestingly, he was a member of the Fortean Society, and he was interestingly, despite being a ufologist, was very quick to denigrate those who thought that UFOs were extraterrestrial spaceships. Instead, he believed they were ultra-terrestrial projections. So visual phenomena produced by the interactions between the dimension that we inhabit and perceive and the adjacent dimensions in which other ultra-terrestrial beings It's exist. a real multiverse situation going on here. <laughs> cool story, bro. Yeah. <laughs> there is some evidence as well that the book, try to contain your amazement, that this book may have been embellished somewhat. There is a uh, 2002 Skeptical Inquirer piece by John C. Sherwood that evaluated some letters that had been written between Keel and Gray Barker, another UFO researcher, during the period of the book's writing. And it seemed that there were significant differences between what Keel wrote at the time, the phenomena he was reporting and his explanations, therefore, and then what he eventually wrote in the book. So even his own contemporaneous accounts of these paranormal spooky goings-on were not consistent with what he eventually published. I mean, clearly some editor was like, yeah, dude, this isn't going to sell enough copies. Anything to jazz it up a little? Yeah, exactly. 
I'm looking for something a little more jazzy. You want me to put in a drum solo? So remember that the collapse of the bridge was December 15th, 1967. The original sighting was November 16th, 1966. So this Mothman phenomenon lasted just over a year. So the original sighting was in 66, November 16th. Would you believe that a plausible explanation was printed in the very same newspaper three days after the event? Yes, I believe that. So the headline of that article was, That Mothman, would you believe a Sandhill Crane? Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. The red eyes, right. Dr. Robert L. Smith, Associate Professor of Wildlife Biology in West Virginia University's Division of Forestry, told Mason Sheriff George Johnson at Point Pleasant that he believes the thing which has been frightening people in the Point Pleasant area since Tuesday is a large bird, which stopped off while migrating south. From all the descriptions I've read about this thing, it perfectly matches the Sandhill Crane, said the professor. I definitely believe that's what these people are seeing. Hmm. Look at that wingspan. Mm-hmm. Look at that weird, not super prominent head with those big red spots that look like eyes. That is a sandhill crane. However, this isn't the only plausible explanation. Other investigators have proposed that the great blue heron is a more likely culprit. Because it, again, has a large wingspan, but its typical migratory pattern brings it a little bit closer to West Virginia on a regular basis. And as Lauren alluded to earlier, or was it Ashland? Skeptical investigator Joe Nickel favors the barred owl as the explanation. Now, when you bring up the possibility that an owl was involved in these sightings, people are quick to point out, well, owls don't tend to be seven feet tall. And he's seven foot tall, and you can't teach And I would propose that owls tend to be in trees, (laughs) which are, in fact, sometimes seven feet tall, even larger occasionally. And that when you're running around in the dark with a flashlight and you see the red light reflect off of an owl's eyes, you might be spooked into thinking that this large thing in front of you is a, a single being rather than an owl perched in a tree. The red eyes are certainly the easiest thing to explain, as just about anything with a retina and dilated pupils will have red eyes when you shine a light into it, which is exactly what they reported, if you recall, in that article that I read off the top. They only glowed red when they were shining their light in it. That's called the red reflex. It's also called the red eye effect. But in medicine, we call it the red reflex. Reflex just meaning reflection. And it's very important in pediatrics to make sure people don't have juvenile cataracts or various eye cancers, etc. This is the same explanation that's for the Hopkinsville Goblin case or the Kelly Green Men case. They thought it was aliens running around the roof of their their houses and they went outside with the flashlights and it was it was big owls. Mm. <laughs> this was the little mm. green men starting in nineteen fifty five. Yeah. I wish somebody had told that to that girl from No One Will Save You. It would have saved her a lot of trouble. So the, the Mothman, of course, had a lasting impact on West Virginia, mostly in the tourism industry. And in the podcast industry. And in the podcast industry. It is a, a fun kind of zany story. It's something a little bit different. And 
sightings are still happening. There is one in 2016 where a photograph was published by an anonymous man who was driving on Route 2 in Mason County that purported to show a Mothman. And one of the photos just looks like a silhouette of an owl. The other photo that was published with it kind of actually does look like a weird Mothman. But then you realize, no, it's just an owl like carrying a snake in its talons. Mm. We'll link to those in the show notes. But it it is cool how if you're primed with Mothman, you'll see, oh, yeah, that that looks like a weird Mothman. And then if somebody's like, no, it's an owl carrying a snake, you're like, oh, no, that's definitely an owl carrying a snake. <laughs> so that is the Mothman. It is one of the enduring modern urban legends in the United States. It's a fun story. It is an extra dimensional projection, apparently, presumably much like Bigfoot. And now it has joined the pantheon of strange cryptids and creatures that we've talked about on the podcast along the lines of Bigfoot, the Flatwoods Monster, the Michele Mbembe, the Kting Voir, man-eating trees, and apparently something called a barnacle goose that I don't remember talking about, but it was in our show notes for one of our <laughs> previous episodes, so apparently it's it got one of my favorites. episode 108. Yeah. The barnacle goose is, is one of my favorite cryptids. We've talked about cryptids many times in the past, including episode 174 and 108, and then also uh, some of our movie review episodes where we reviewed Sasquatch Unearthed. I think you all reviewed Mermaids the Body Found without me at one point. I might have been studying. Sounds something familiar. I do sometimes. We watched it in your basement. I think you watched it with us and then, and then I just left. I don't remember anything <laughs> yeah. about it though. Yeah. Oh yeah, it was bad. I've watched I, a few well, really bad mermaid documentaries, so I'm having trouble parsing this one out of my experiences. <laughs> this was the same one that we had watched in Fargo that you that got you real angry. Oh yeah. And then we watched it again for the podcast. That was pretty funny, that one. So one question that I have for you, Ashlyn, then, is are mermaids in any way related to, are they in maybe the same clade as the sea ape? Oh, definitely. At least one of them. Georg Wilhelm Steller was born in 1709, and because it was 300 years ago, he became a botanist, zoologist, physician, and explorer all before the age of 37, when he died of a fever. <laughs> oh, I was about to say something to aspire to. <laughs> but it was the 1700s, so he did not reach it. He did not reach 40. So there was this huge expedition funded by Russia called the Great Northern Expedition. Well, eventually it was called the Great Northern Expedition because it achieved a whole bunch of stuff, but it was it was called at the time the Second Kamchatka Expedition, which is much less grand sounding. Over the course of this expedition, Russian explorers mapped most of the coast of Siberia and some of North America, and this included Europeans reaching the Aleutian and Commander Islands for the first time. So Georg joined the Great Northern Expedition, but he missed the when it left. So he had to travel overland through Russia from Moscow to Okutsk over the course of two years where he where he joined up with the expedition. His wife was planning to join him for a bunch of this, but then stayed in Moscow because she was like, this sucks. Walking across Russia, not fun. Oh, Yog, 
such a pessimist. Oh my god. Shocker, Morgan, right? like, through Siberia in the winter. In 1700. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oof. So during this expedition, which was miserable, Stellar described and named dozens of species, and he does not seem like he was a very creative person. Some of his creatures include Stellar's Sculpin, which is a fish, Stellar's Jay, Stellar's Eider, Stellar's Sea Eagle, Stellar's Sea Cow, and Stellar's Sea Lion. He named an entire genus of plants, Stellara. He also <laughs> named a mineral. Guess what he called it? Stellarite. It is, in fact, Stellarite. <laughs> <laughs> Got it in one. <laughs> So at one point in this super epic journey, this guy sees a new creature, which I guess wasn't that exciting, except apparently he didn't get to leave the boat, like, basically ever. One 10-hour expedition at one point was most of his on-land time until bad things happened later. Anyway, so he sees a new creature in the water. Very exciting. Here's his description. The animal was about two L's, that's about six feet long. The head was like a dog's head, the ears pointed and erect, and on the upper and lower lips on both sides, whiskers hung down. The body was longish, round, and fat. The skin was covered thickly with hair, gray on the back, reddish-white on the belly. But in water, it seemed to be all red and cow-colored. And he called it Stellar's Sea Ape. It just looks if... like me in the water. <laughs> oh. If I told you that I saw a creature in the water... With a dog-like head and big whiskers and a longish, fat, furry body, what would you think I saw? A walrus? No. It's a good one. The teeth are missing, which seems like kind of an important feature. An otter. An otter? Yeah, good. Never an otter. Well, I don't know how big it is, though. Like a dog-shaped head, but I don't, I'm not sure the dimensions of this thing. Did you mention Two, it? Yeah, it's oh, like about yeah, six sorry. feet long. Okay. Two yeah, L's. Like, so so, yeah, so an otter's too small, but I was thinking like a sea lion or something like that, or a yeah. seal. Like, Yeah, these are good guesses. Stellar claims to have observed this creature for two hours, playing, even juggling with some kelp, and being increasingly curious about the ship. Naturally, since he was a European dude from 300 years ago, the next step was to shoot this delightful creature, <laughs> the first of its kind he'd ever seen, and bring it home. He either missed or shot twice and only wounded it, after which it swam away, never to be seen again. Shit like this is why Stellar's sea cow, a real creature which existed and was described on this expedition, only lasted 27 more years after this before being declared extinct. Which Stellar's sea cow was a dugong, so very closely related to manatees, in fact. Hmm. So for such a shaky description of a creature that so obviously resembles creatures Stellar later described himself on the same expedition, this thing had a lot of scientific time devoted to it. It has had four different classifications. Simia marina, Siren cynocephala, Trichichus hydropithecus, and Manatus simia. Four different binomial names this thing has acquired. But what? Why? Why Simia? Why Simian? It's, it sounds nothing like an ape. Yeah, because that's how he, it was described, and we're sticking with it. I guess <laughs> who knows? We just have to trust him on this one. I guess. Yeah, but it, like the description that you gave, it does not sound ape-like. 
Not at all. But I mean, it like we name bugs and other things after other animals all the time if they remind us. Like there are plenty of blue beetles named for peacocks and stuff like that. Sure. Okay. Fair. <laughs> Just don't this have dis- enough whimsy. Yes, that is apparent. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed this description of ancient science drama with all of these name changes. In 1815, a German zoologist also described it as a manatee and gave it the name Manatissimia. This work in particular was later called a, quote, worthless conglomeration of Cyrenian and cetacean species by an American mammologist, with new species, quote, listed for seemingly no reason without description or justification. Wow. Very, very shady. (laughs) So back to what it actually is. Stellar later described both stellar sea lions and northern fur seals in the Commander Islands. Northern fur seals have external ears. Juveniles exhibit playful behavior towards boats, like what Stellar observed, and sometimes swim with their front legs tucked in. The most probable explanation, or they could have met with a congenitively malformed one. In addition, females have a similar coloring to his description with reddish-white bellies and gray backs. And their sort of front flipper arm dealios are set quite far back. So, especially because Stellar didn't even really say it was armless, he just said he didn't observe arms. They were probably just held back and didn't see them. This thing gets more and more ape-like with every additional description. (laughs) Apes famously known for no arms. Girl, you ain't got no arms. I'm just, I'm not going to let this go. I'm sorry. Here's, here's where the ape thing comes in, I think. Oh, maybe. okay. Okay. One explanation that is probably purely made up internet garbage, but is funny, <laughs> is that the creature was never intended to be taken seriously. According to this theory, the sea ape never appears in official reports, only in the book of sea life that he wrote while stranded on an island where everyone around him died of scurvy. Oh, Yeah. So there was a big shipwreck on this right, you, expedition. You did, you did say you you did foreshadow something earlier. I did say there was bad stuff coming. <laughs> so this expedition with the the very fancy backed by the Russian empress's boats and captains and like there was like three thousand people involved. It it was something like it cost a seventh of the Russian Empire's income, like a yearly income to do this thing. It was it was a big undertaking, and they they managed to explore a lot of things. But this guy who was in charge of the boat, the main boat, was dying of scurvy. And this guy, Stellar, was like, hey, I'm a doctor. Here's some berries and leaves that I foraged. They'll probably help you with these scurvy symptoms. He and his assistants were the only ones who did not have scurvy symptoms. However, the other people and officers on the boat were like, nah, that doesn't sound like it'll work. <laughs> and they all died of scurvy. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. That that was the consequence. I don't believe the doctor. I die of scurvy. <laughs> but the guy did invent the C eight. So I mean, no, no. This guy like, was. Oh, this is the one oh, who saying, had the berries. His captain did not listen to him. Oh, I thought this was Stellar had the berries. No, no. Stellar Stellar has the berries. The captain will not eat the berries. Mm-hmm. I, I think what Lauren is saying maybe is that the captain was thinking. This guy says he saw a sea ape. I'm not going to believe anything he says. <laughs> yeah, that was it. <laughs> oh, I see, I see. Okay. Thank you, Jim. This doctor doesn't sound too trustworthy. He's seeing cryptids everywhere. 
Well, but like, so a, a lot of the boat apparently saw this, but right. this yeah. doctor is one of the only ones who survived the problem. <laughs> and he didn't survive very long. It, nobody does. In the grand scheme of things, nobody does. That's fair. And but the, the sea ape does not yeah. appear in his official reports that he sent back to the the scientific community. It does appear in this book that he wrote while he was dying of scurvy. So they didn't believe him about the scurvy thing. Most of them died. They cobbled together a boat out of the wreck of their other boat and eventually got back. And this guy, Stellar, was suspected of being, I guess, too sympathetic to the native Kamchatkins and fomenting rebellion. So he was called back to Russia to talk to them in some hearing about how he's too nice to the natives. And then he died of fever en route. And all of his notes and shit got back to the academy, but he didn't. And his so his explanations of his work and his writings were unavailable mm-hmm. to science. The the sea ape is theorized to possibly be a satirical representation of the captain. <laughs> because the sea ape bore a certain superficial resemblance to the doomed Captain Bering and to Stellar's description of the captain in his notes. So big whiskers, reddish hair, long, fat, hairy body. No but the arms. main evidence that people use seems to be the name that Stellar proposed initially, which this could be evidence that the whole thing was made up, but it could also just be, haha, found a funny animal, gonna name it this. It's not just Simia Marina, but Simia Marina Danica, the Danish sea ape. And there was only, theory, the theory goes, one Dane upon this ship. <laughs> <laughs> so did he name the, the sea ape after the Dane because he just hated the captain and he thought it would be funny or possibly in honor of the captain, even though apparently they did not get along? Or was it entirely made up? Hard to say. Again, he did not survive to explain himself. None of them have ever been seen again, except for maybe one guy. But it's almost certainly a female northern fur seal, which is a creature I just learned about and is very cute. Like, you don't normally see seals with, like, ears. And, like, you can... They have ears, (laughs) which is really cool. The glasses ain't crooked now because they got no ears. That's super fun. I love pettiness from a long time ago. Like pettiness from prim and proper times. I love it. It's yes. so, good. Mm-hmm. so good. Very good. Yeah. I don't know. Either way. Well, I I look forward to seeing a picture of a fur seal. You know what? I was wrong. This thing does kind of look like an ape. <laughs> Did you look up a picture of it? <laughs> they're really cute, and apparently, like if they pop up out of the like the water and they're playing, they can be quite playful and fun. Nice, they're adorable. I love watching the seals at Asinaboin Zoo. Like when they're zooming around, like they genuinely seem like they're having an amazing time showing off for people, and oh, I yeah. love it. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. They just seem like yes, I, they're like I'm living my best life right here. The fish just comes to me and I'm just having a ball. <laughs> and it genuinely seems like the more people are there watching them, the more flippy and the more like excited yeah. they get. I love it. <laughs> the one that just hung out above the tunnel when we were there a couple weeks ago, just kind of lay on the top of the tunnel. I want to snuggle tunnel. them all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're they're super fun. We actually have a stellar sea eagle at the zoo. Yeah, yes, yeah. They're huge and scary. That, like, yeah, they are huge. They're they're beautiful, though. 
and and di- quite different from our like from the bald eagles and such around here. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, but yeah, they I look just, like they could screw you up. Yep, that beak, that curved beak. Like, mm-hmm. no thanks. Nope, nope. You just stick to fish, buddy. <laughs> and the Stellar's J is really beautiful. Apparently, the Stellar's J is one of the only things named for Stellar that's not like on the brink of endangerment, though. So it's apparently a joke that being named after him is a, is bad luck. <laughs> We could just call this bleak cast. <laughs> Statement that is always relevant, I think. Yeah, not, that's true. Not confined to this episode. L-U-E-E, the bleakest cast. <laughs> I had a really fun time researching this one and researching more into Stellar's life and this shipwreck yeah. and all of this drama. This He died at 37 and he did all of this. That just like <laughs> blows my mind. But... Whether the sea ape was a seal or a satire may never be known, since, as mentioned previously, he discovered a zoo full of animals and then died younger than most of us at this table. So one oops, one cryptid entered into the record, probably not that big a deal. (laughs) (laughs) There's been worse things, I think. (laughs) Yeah, worse crimes have been committed. And he tried to help those people with berries, and they just would not. That is something, right? Eat the berries! These guys aren't dying. Maybe you should do what they're doing. Probably the homeliest animal in the world, and knows it. A sad creature, both in looks and personality, the squonk is a forest cryptid from the Pennsylvania area. It is characterized by its warty, wrinkled skin, which is typically described as ill-fitting. It's a four-legged creature with webbed toes, but the webbing is only on the left-sided feet, (laughs) meaning that if it enters water, it can only swim in counterclockwise circles, and legend holds that innumerable squonks have perished by starvation while swimming endlessly in these Pennsylvania swamps. For this reason, the squonk resides mainly in the Pennsylvania hemlock forests, hiding under thick boughs or in caves. So, I'm talking about the squonk, obviously. I gathered. (laughs) The best-named cryptid. The best-named cryptid of all. The squonk is said to be of low intelligence and in constant despair over its appearance. It's known to weep constantly because of its ugliness, leaving a trail of tears wherever it goes, which is one of the ways to track the creature through the forest. Would-be squonk hunters can also mimic its cry, which is rather like that of a human, and the cryptid will draw nearer to the sound. Should a hunter catch a squonk, it won't put up much of a fight. The hunter should be aware that when frightened or captured, the squonk will take to crying so deeply that the creature itself will dissolve into tears, leaving behind only a small puddle of salty water and a few bubbles, which do not make for a great trophy. This, my friends, is the squonk. I like how you're shaking your head, Ashlyn. (laughs) Anything that's described as dissolving into a salty puddle, you gotta take that with a grain of salt. Like, you all know that creatures don't just dissolve and disappear, especially if they have enough skin that it's ill-fitting. (laughs) So, the squonk first had its appearance in a book, in a 1910 book called Fearsome Creatures of the Lumberwoods, which is an amazing name. Just, like, 10 out of 10 title there. Written by William T. Cox, who worked for the Forestry Service in the Appalachians in the Midwest of the United States. This was its first official publicized 
entrance into the world. And then it was publicized again in the 1939 book, Fearsome Critters, also a great title. These books are just amazing. Written by Henry H. Tyron, who also worked for the Forestry Service, like Cox. Outside of these mentions, and some mentions in the press surrounding the publication of both of these books, squonks do not appear much in Pennsylvania literature or popular culture at all. So unlike a lot of the cryptids, where they spring up by sightings of people or folklore or something like that, the squonk lives in the published record, and that's where the public learned about the squonk. As the article The Sad One by Ernie Smith for TDM.com notes, it's clear that the squonk came to be through the imagination of foresters who loved the woods and the profession and wanted to use tales of amazing creatures as a way to conserve and preserve the forests. The books that introduce the squonk are written as an homage to the lumberjack storytelling as a pastime in logging camps after a day of work. And the squonk itself is not really a redeeming protagonist or one that the public might clamor to see as it's neither beautiful nor a source of food since it dissolves. But it tells a nice tale about how there are creatures of all sorts on this earth. And they and their environments are worth saving even if they don't please our human sensibilities. Really, the squonk was made up. It never really was a cryptid. Nobody really thinks it's a cryptid. Well, I won't say nobody. Most people never really thought it existed out there. It lives in fantasy and in the minds of foresters who want the public to think of the forest as a magical place and all the things that could be within it and to care for this magical place. That's all I really have to say about the squonk. If you look up the pictures, it is kind of ugly, but in a very cute kind of way. It's very much the Eeyore of cryptids. I like that the fact that it cries about its ugliness is kind of funny to me. Not that I like that, but I just think it's a very funny touch. One of the bits of information given to would-be hunters as well is that if you are going to go hunt a squonk, you should go out on a moonlit night because they're not likely to be moving around too much. They're likely to stay in one spot because they're worried that if they venture out and see them their own reflection in a moonlit puddle, they will get too sad. So, but too the squonk, sad to live. Poor squonk. Too sad to live. Too sad. And heaven forbid they might venture into that puddle and there's just no way out with that half half webbed feet. Oh, so the saddest the fact, creature. It is very sad, despite the fact that it never really was a cryptid in the way that we often think about it. It still lives on more than a century ago. I learned that Genesis has a song called Squonk that tells the entire story of the tearful creature. It's really in-depth, <laughs> to say it mildly. It's, it's a song. Really in-depth. <laughs> it's really in-depth. Yeah, it, it truly tells the tale of the squonk, including crying itself into oblivion. It was also mentioned in the Steely Dan song, Any Major Dude Will Tell You, although it was more of a minor mention. The squonk has been a Final Fantasy character and a character in the game MetaZoo. And I don't know anything more about either of those, so don't ask me. <laughs> <laughs> it was also the subject of an April Fool's Day scientific article that was published in Chemical Innovation on April 1st, 2001, where it, that this article introduced the term a chemical squonk, which is a substance that is stable in its wild type, but when observed or captured, I'm doing lots of air quotes here, listeners, <laughs> uh, when observed or captures, it alters itself or disintegrates, which is great. <laughs> and 
If you feel like venturing to the town of Johnstown, Pennsylvania in August, you can attend Squonkapalooza, which is a festival. Oh my god. <laughs> what? <laughs> in Pennsylvania in August? <laughs> it was in August of this year. I do not know if it's every year, but it was August 26th, I believe, of this year. Where you can celebrate squonks and many things cryptid. So... Have a look at some pictures of squonks. There's some cute ones out there. And remember that just because it's ugly doesn't mean it's not worth saving. Lauren is holding up a book. Apparently they have a book with the squonk in it. What book is that, Lauren? It's called Mythical Beasts. It is a yeah. cryptid book that I have had since the early 1980s. So that one's interesting because that one very much looks like some kind of Gila monster axolotl cross there. Mm -hmm. And many of them are more incredibly excess skin, dog-like, pig-like creature. Like the face is kind of pig-like, but it's hairless, but warty and lot very wrinkly. So that's very interesting, yeah. that one. It is half man, half bear, and half pig. I've seen I've seen pictures like where they look like human-sized naked mole rats. Yes, yeah. Yeah. I really like those old kind of woodcut style line drawing images of the squonk. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a couple in the show notes from the the two early 20th century books that I mentioned there. So that's the squonk folks. I learned about it a few weeks ago. I needed to learn more. That's all you need to know. Save the forests. I need you all to know that at Squonkapalooza, there was a squonk compliment contest. I need to know what that entails. <laughs> I know. I want to know if it's complimenting the squonk. Do you have to come up with creative ways to tell the squonk it's beautiful despite what it thinks of itself? I love that. I'm in for it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so do they have some sort of thing where it cries more if you're too mean or something, and then it cries less if you're not as mean? I don't know. It is in between the story time slash squonk photo ops and the squonk plushie giveaway, so I suspect that they will be trying to not scar children. <laughs> it is the first cryptid that I've ever heard of with clinical depression. Ha! It <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that knowing what I know about, well, me, if you complimented the squonk, it would make it even worse. Yeah, you should just, I don't know, toss it some escitalopram. Probably make things a little bit better, maybe. <laughs> that is all. Okay, but what sound does it make? Does it, like, you said it sounds like a human. Does it, does it say squonk? Squonk sounds so much like an onomatopoeia. That has to be It should sound. be like a Pokemon. It should go squonk, squonk, right? Yeah, no, definitely. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. <laughs> it cries, and it sounds like kind of like a human crying, and then also like the the snee, which I think is another cryptid. So it 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 none of the articles say anything about it making a squonk sound. That's sad. It is sad. Maybe that's the sound it makes when it dissolves. <laughs> squonk. Tonight, friends and listeners, I'm going to tell you the tale of a cryptid which I have experienced for myself. Long ago, in the late aughts, I did a lot of solo travel. Though my destinations were not exotic, they did require a butt-ton of driving because we live on a metropolitan island 
in the middle of an ocean of goddamn nowhere. This particular trip, I was coming home from somewhere in the United States, and there was one desolate highway that brought me from the border crossing back into Winnipeg. From the border, it's only an hour to the edge of the city, but it was nearing midnight as I came up towards the town of St. Norbert, which has a gate that can be pulled across the highway in the event of flooding. Speeding up to this gate in the dark, I saw a large black dog standing near it on the side of the road. It wasn't wolf-sized, but it was about the size of a German shepherd or a very large black lamb. I slowed my car a little bit because I didn't know what it would do. And without warning, it darted into the road right in front of my little Honda Civic. Being the only car on the road, I swerved and pressed the, the brakes, but I knew in my heart that it was too late. My car came to a screeching stop on the shoulder, and I put it in park and hopped right out. I looked around for either a scared or hurt or dead dog and a mangled bumper, and I found nothing. No dog, no blood, no evidence at all, except a bit of burned rubber on the pavement. After a thorough search, I got back into my car and proceeded cautiously and very much wide awake home. I later learned that I was not the first tired late night driver to see this black dog. And it appears worldwide as a trick of the light and tired road glazed eyes. Dave and I now refer to this type of driving as black dogging it. And it's our cue to switch out who's, who's behind the wheel at that time. <laughs> he comes from a family of long distance truck drivers, which is a community that knows the scripted well. The legend of the black dog goes back much further than the North American highway system. There's New Jersey Pine Barrens, to the English Moors, to the Mesopotamian riverbanks. Large black dogs and wolves feature in myths of cryptids and most other folklore. If any of our listeners is ever bored, I would like you to go through our archive and find out how many times I've mentioned Gilgamesh. <laughs> here's, an, here's one to get you started. The goddess Ishtar asked Gilgamesh to have sex, and he, remembering that she turned her last lover into a black wolf, says... He literally says, sorry, I have an early meeting tomorrow. And he dips. <laughs> Technically, this is folkloric and not a cryptid sighting, but it's the first written account we have of how far back black dogs and wolves have been seen as bad omens. This farmer who did not please the goddess was then, he was transformed into an animal that would hurt his own sheep. I'm going to skip over ancient Greece and Fenrir and his offspring and other worldwide black wolf myths through history, and I'm going to bring us to our more modern cryptid versions of the United Kingdom. By modern, of course, I mean from the 1500s and on. Black dog cryptids are almost prosaic in the United Kingdom. England is divided into 48 counties, and only two do not have black dog cryptid myths. Spoiler, with a few notable exceptions, seeing one of these black dogs in the night means you or someone close to you will die shortly. See, Laura, I'm not the only one who uses the word prosaic. It surprises me 0% that Lauren also <laughs> is searching for that word at times and uses it. Okay? Oh, they came up with it without searching, to their credit. Folklorist Mark Norman has written an intense survey of over 700 UK black dog cryptids in his book, aptly titled Black Dog Folklore. I'm not that intense, so I'm just going to hit a couple of the high points. The black shuck is a ghostly black dog that roams Western England. It is sometimes an omen of death, but sometimes it's also a protector. The name Shuck comes from the old English word skuka, which is devil or fiend. And it's perhaps from the root word of skuh, which is to terrify. 
The first mention in print of Black Shuck is by Reverend Taylor in the 1850 edition of the journal Notes and Queries, which describes Shuck the dog fiend as, this phantom I have heard many persons in Norfolk and even Cambridgeshire describe as having seen as a black shaggy dog with fiery eyes of immense size and who visits churchyards at midnight. Before that, Abraham Fleming's account of an appearance of a strange and terrible wonder, spelled with a U, in 1577 in Bungay, Suffolk, is a famous account of this black shot, and the dog has worked its way into local folklore, histories, and more recently, of course, merchandise. Fleming's account stemmed from a sighting at the churches of Bungay and Blyburg in Suffolk. On August 4, 1577, the Black Shuck is said to have come in through the doors of the Holy Trinity Church to a clap of thunder. He ran up the aisle past the huge congregation, and he killed a man and his son, and caused the church steeple to collapse through the roof. As the dog left, he left scorch marks on the northern door, which can be seen at the church to this day. Sounds more like ball lightning to me, but <laughs> an interesting part of this tale is that the archaeologists working on the ruins of Leicester Abbey in East Anglia, so in the same area, They've excavated a skeleton of what appears to be a huge dog that would have weighed about 200 pounds, and they say stands about seven feet tall. And you can't teach that! I don't believe that. This massive beast was buried in a shallow grave in the abbey, and it may have been placed there around the same time as this most famous phantom black dog story was reported, so around the late 1500s. Most accounts of the black dogs across the United Kingdom are very similar except a few where the cryptid in question helps the traveler or saves a local from a terrible fate at the hands of other people. Usually that comes with a moral tale of being nice to dogs. And whatever you think of me, you should know that your boyfriend, he hates old people, he hates children, and he hates dogs. But usually the black dog either chases or mauls or destroys. If you hear one howl three times, someone close to you has either just died or will die in the next week. <laughs> hedging some odds there. I feel like back, sorry, go ahead. Back in the day, that was one of those like, oh, within two weeks of a full moon things because people died a lot more often. Yeah, sorry, I would agree. Dark. We're looking fictionally. The most memorable black dog is in England. The Hound of the Baskervilles. Jim gets it in one. Hound of the Baskervilles by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. The titular hound is haunting the head of the Baskerville family, apparently killing them. And Conan Doyle based the story on the legend of Richard Cable of Brook Hall, which is in Devonshire. Cable was what in those days was described as a monstrously evil man. Not to quote. He gained this reputation, among other things, for immorality and having sold his soul to the devil, which could give him immortality. There was also a rumor that he had murdered his wife, Elizabeth Fowl. In July 1677, he died and was buried in the sepulchre. The night of his internment saw a phantom pack of hounds come baying across the moor to howl at his tomb because Richard Cable was a noted hunter. So from that night on, he could be found leading this phantom pack of dogs across the moor, usually on the anniversary of his death. If they were not out hunting, they would be found around the grave howling and shrieking. To try to lay his soul to rest, the villagers built a large building around his tomb. And then after that didn't work, they placed a huge rock slab on top of it. They were sealing him into that tomb. Our black dog cryptid is, as I inferred in my intro, international. Apart from roaming the moors, they hang out on the sides of roads and look for sleepy drivers to scare the crap out of. Like me. The black dog 
on the roadside appears as a warning to sleepy drivers to get off the road as soon as possible because danger is coming. Supposedly, when a trucker has been driving too long, the black dog will run in front of the truck before disappearing, as happened to me, and the sudden shock causes the driver to become more alert, as happened to me. The legend continues that the black dog belonged to a trucker who met an untimely end after falling asleep at the wheel, and his dog now appears to warn others of danger. However, these accounts are most likely due to hypnagogic hallucinations. We've talked about hypnagogic and hypnocompetent hallucinations before. These are the harmless hallucinations that bracket sleep. Well, harmless if you're safe in your bed and not driving a large vehicle. These black dogs serve the same functions as the ancient ones. They scare you enough to wake you up and hopefully get you somewhere safe before you continue your travels. Very interesting. It is always interesting when it's similar types of things. Why does the brain do that? Like, it, I can see how it would be really easy for people to say, like, see, it is real. It is a real thing. Why would all humans across the globe and, and time experience this? It's like, well, we all have human brains and that are mm -hmm. kind of constructed the same way. So, and there are dogs on every continent. Wherever humans have gone, they brought dogs with them. Yep. Yeah, they're incredibly yep. popular. And dogs are useful, but also kind of dangerous. So, yeah. Yeah. So it, it's just very interesting. Like, it is an interesting example. Like, here we could explain or give plausible things. But at the same time, it's it's really cool when it's like, yeah, why isn't it like, cranes in one place and snakes in another or i don't know like bears or whatever right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i really wanted to go deeper onto this when i was researching but i didn't have the time so <laughs> those are all things that i would love i'm sure somebody else has researched a lot as to why our brains all do the same thing there's even a phenomenon about it that like black cats black dogs are the last ones to be adopted and people mm -hmm. are more appear more afraid of black dogs than of similar dogs of any other, of any other color. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. I wonder if that has anything to do with the fact that when it is dark, it is harder to see those animals. Like it just is the pure black ones. Yeah. I and I mean, know. there's, there's always the folklore of black dogs and black cats or minions of Satan and all yes. sorts of other disgusting things that we put on these poor defenseless animals all through history. <laughs> but yeah, if you see a black dog on the side of the road, pull over. You're very sleepy. Do not keep driving. <laughs> Good advice. <laughs> have either of you ever seen this phenomenon? I never have. No. No, I, I've had hypnagogic hallucinations. I don't recall ever seeing something like that darting into the road. It's scary as crap. Let me tell <laughs> you, it was... This was probably 2009, because it was after my divorce, but before I was living with Ashlyn. So, and I can remember, like, I can feel it in my body today. Oh, wow. The, how, how it felt with this dog. And I mean, I've been on the highway and there's been deer. I've never hit one, thankfully. But this one, it was, oh God, I'm going to kill this dog and it's going to wreck my little Honda Civic. And then there was nothing. So yes, I've seen a cryptid. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. Maybe I should say, very nice. <laughs> Does anyone else have something nice? I didn't come up with a specific thing. <laughs> Today, 
Laura and I took the kids to the No Space for Hate counter protest here in Winnipeg at the legislative building. The purpose of the protest slash party was to sort of show support for specifically trans youth who are being targeted throughout the world constantly, but specifically to counter the what do they call this march? The Million million Parents March? Something like that? Yeah, I don't remember exactly. Five some, angry guys in a Chevy? Yeah, it's some like two dozen people showed up at City Hall, basically, championing parental the, the parental right to know whether your kid has changed their pronouns at school or whatever over the child's right to safety from their parents, which is, it's a shame. But, but that protest was apparently fairly poorly attended, as is to be expected, while the rally that we attended, the No Space for Hate counter-protest, which was fairly removed, it was very well attended, and the speakers were were lovely, and it was actually occurring at the same time as a Free Gaza Palestinian self-determination rally that was happening just across the street, and the speakers were also very supportive of that event too, which was nice to see. We are, of course, recording this podcast while Gaza is still under active bombardment by Israel. It was a, a heartening, positive time. It's a hard time for, for a lot of people right now. It was a bright spot. And it was lovely to be able to share that not only with my family, but but also with everybody else who had chosen to attend. Yeah, so that's my something nice. Thank you. I will follow that up. As Jem said, and we're at the end of October here as we're recording. This will come out in early November. But one bright spot is Manitoba ousted the Conservatives, <laughs> mostly, except for strongholds that aren't ever going to change in the the southern part of the province. And I'm a cynical person, but Mm -hmm. I'm looking forward to what Wab Canoe and his cabinet are able to do for this province, especially since he has created a new cabinet position to address homelessness and the needs of those who are unhoused or underhoused and living in poverty. So... I'm hoping they can live up to our expectations for them. And mm. as a queer person, I am able to breathe just a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. Our, our depressing something's nice. I know. This is, this is really not good. Anybody who was hoping for some uplifting vibes, sorry. <laughs> Ashlyn also took the kittens outside and it's stinkingly adorable when they're outside <laughs> with their little puppies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would. I'm glad that we are not going to have a conservative provincial government at the same time as a conservative federal government. Yeah, I don't know if I have hope so much as less despair about the that election. <laughs> yeah, but taking the kittens outside was awesome. They committed many kitten crimes. They attempted to escape in various and sundry ways. We still have three kittens at the end of it, so it was successful. Good. The uh, same three kittens that we went outside with. Yes, to clarify, <laughs> they are the same one ones. Out or something. <laughs> I also have sort of mostly finished taking in my garden. 
And that has just been a constant source of bright spot for me throughout this whole summer. And it will start again in February. <laughs> but like I got a, a big bucket full of Brussels sprouts that I grew mostly through neglect. Like it's just been so exciting to go to the garden and bring home wagons full of food every time. Just awesome. what a great feeling. That's so cool. Yeah. Ashlyn's on the list to get a second plot at our community garden. Oh my God. Next year, maybe. I really want more roots. Mm-hmm. No, that's that that will be your full time job from February till October. Yeah. apparently. <laughs> I'm also going to get a a membership, so we'll both be out there with our little garden plot. I'm I'll have the same plots as Ashlyn because I'm not getting my own. <laughs> Are you not allowed to go? Like, is it only the the member? You're technically holder? supposed to have a membership for every gardener. Oh, okay. So how loosely or strictly they interpret that, we don't really know, but, like, nobody's ever yelled at me for having them there, so. I mean, I feel like it's pretty, with gardening, especially if you're doing some heavy stuff, like, if you were growing a bunch of pumpkins, it's very reasonable to have someone help you carry the pumpkins out, even if you did all the other care for the pumpkins, yeah. right? Like, that's that's normal. <laughs> but. Joining the Horticultural Society is what, 15 or 25 bucks a year? So it's not. Yeah, Yeah, it's not a hardship. No, no, it's that. And and you guys, you all just reap so many benefits from it. And and your neighbors Mm -hmm. and friends do, too, by extension, whenever you Mm -hmm. make soup for people and whatnot. So that's awesome. That's so cool. More beets is more soup. More beets equals more soup. Yes. And our little garden shelf was well picked over this year. Instead of a little free library, Ashlyn put out a little free garden shelf and people were bringing over their excess amounts of zucchinis and other people were coming and taking zucchinis as they needed and other vegetables as well. So we had our little socialist commune here. It was great. <laughs> That's wonderful. That's awesome. I I find I always am starting to get burnt out by the time that stuff like beets and carrots are coming and then I will get mystery drop-offs of unknown amounts of these things from family one family member in particular usually on a very busy week and then I go I I can't process these I don't know what I'm doing with this he means well I it's not that I don't appreciate it it's just that my steam has already mostly run out and then it's like, and I have another five pounds of carrots. Okay, <laughs> what am I going to do with five pounds of carrots now? <laughs> yeah, so- it's hard to process everything that comes into the house immediately. Lauren has done a really good job of that this year. Yeah. I made a tomatillo salsa that was to die for. Oh, I've gone, yeah. like, I only, I made like two of the one liter, of the one liter jars or whatever, and I'm mostly done them. Because we didn't, I didn't, I didn't do the, like, pop canning or anything for yeah, them. So. Yeah, yeah. Okay. No, that just sounds fridge, awesome. Fridge canned. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Okay, I'll stop putting off my own something nice now. Jem's giving me sad eyes. It's not helping. Oh, I'm sorry. I just figure that I probably stole your something nice. So. No, you didn't. Okay. No, I mean, like, I was sitting here going, nothing nice, nothing is good. I'm fine. It's okay. No. <laughs> Do you need some acetylopram? <laughs> No, talk therapy, Jem. Mm, We're going to yeah. be at odds about this. You're the medical side. I'm the psychosocial side. No, no, no. I was the one who's complaining to my psychiatrist preceptor about the fact that we're not doing enough 
therapy. Enough psychodynamic or CBT. So my my something nice was earlier this week, I had a nice impromptu visit with a friend of mine, and we are both working and have multiple stuff and have children, so finding times that overlap is not something, especially especially when we try to plan it just a day ahead. The odds of us both saying, yeah, I'm free tomorrow, no problem, and it being truly not a problem, not having to rearrange stuff, is pretty low, so that was... That was pretty nice, and I guess just in general, quieter weekend is kind of nice. That's awesome. I agree. Quiet is good. We actually know what we're talking about next month. Yeah. So what are we talking about next month, Ashlyn? For December, our very special gift to all of you is a review of the movie Night at the Creation Museum, which I think we are all very excited to watch. And we may have a bunch of our regulars on, our regular guests, by which I mean Dave and Kyle. They both expressed interest in watching this. Who wants to come watch a terrible Creation Museum movie with us? And we can even maybe talk a little bit about our experience at the terrible Winnipeg Creation Museum and how it compares. Which has been no more for a long time. Yeah. Uh, I think our zeal for discussing our Creation Museum visit long outlasted and far outstripped anyone's zeal for actually visiting. (laughs) Not a big enough fundy community in Winnipeg to support that place. No, apparently not. They host gymnastics there now. As opposed to the mental gymnastics they were doing before. (laughs) (sighs) Okay, on that note, thanks for joining me tonight, everybody. Good night, everyone. (laughs) Good night. Good night. Show notes and references for all of our episodes are available at lueepodcast.com where you can also find links to donate or get in touch. If you'd like to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you found us, or by sharing this episode with a friend. Life. Don't talk to me about life. My name is Jem Newman, and with me... Excuse me. Do that again. My name is Jem Newman, and with me today I have Ashlyn Noble. Hello! I'm now unmuted. (laughs) (laughs) Also, there was a, a, like, a a somebody sound of a email or something coming through. Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't hear that. At channel. Ugh. Okay, I'm closing. Let's try that again. Sorry. I think that was just on us. I don't think they heard that. Okay. Third time's a charm. Got, I got through that whole thing with, with barely a hiccup, and it's taken three, three tries to get our intro down. Okay. The thing we do every single yeah. time. <laughs> I wish somebody had told that to that, that girl in Nobody Will Save You. It could have saved her a lot of trouble, I think. I don't know what that is. It's a movie. Don't it's- watch it. No one noted. No one will save us. No, no, no one will save us. No one will. No no one. Maybe no one will save you. Anyway, I'm making this. No, no, no. um, I got. I got to say it clean for Marissa. I'm so sorry, Marissa. No, you don't, Jem. The the clean is for you. No one will save. Yes, no one will save you. Okay. In any case.
Yeah. I don't know. I I liked it. I thought it was fine. Well, it, okay. If you like, if you like being in suspense for an hour and a half and bleakness and potentially paranormal stuff, sure, go for it. Let's put it that way. Just watch it's Hereditary. Bleaker. I I still haven't watched that. Maybe maybe when I'm up in Churchill. I I uh, I I liked No One Will Save You because it was like what if signs but good. Yeah. Yes, I will give it <laughs> I will give it that. Um I will give it that, but I don't like any of the things that I just described about the movie. Yeah, bleakness is the number yeah, one yeah. not bleakness fun. Is number No, oh, I I go I to, love me a bleak story. No, no, yeah, I, that tracks. Is supposed to make you feel like take you out of the the challenges of your life and give you something else to think about, not just more ways for things to be terrible. And I got it, a list of bleak ones for you, Jen. I see. <laughs> I I don't doubt that, Lauren. <laughs> yeah, I watched um, while I was away in Nipawa on a previous rotation. I watched. Sorry, this has just become a movie cast suddenly in the middle of my segment. Welcome right at the to end bleak of my segment. cast. Yeah. I watched. Um, Bo is afraid. Oh, <laughs> speaking of hereditary, that's the same. That's the same uh, director, right? Yeah, I think so. Just making this as horrific for Marissa as possible. So sorry, yeah. Marissa. Don't worry, she's I'm not, not even sure afraid. what we're talking about even anymore. Bo is afraid is a yeah, tighter is story. Though. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it, talking about bleak. Anyway. Ah, uh, just bleakness in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I okay. So, a lot of so back didn't. to big winter owls prairie fields. Okay. I was scrolling down my notes to try to toss Lauren some kind of segue, and for their segment, instead of writing the title, which normally what I is normally is what I do, I had just written Lauren. <laughs> so Lauren is a cryptid, yes. According to my coworkers, they never see me. <laughs> <laughs> 